0: From the table, the official podcast of the world-famous Comedy seller coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Comedy, formerly Raw Dog, and wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Natterman here at the top of the hour. Actually, it's 5.40, but in any case, uh, I'm here with Noam Dorman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, and Periel Eschenbrand is here. we got Mike Suarez on the sound. Um, Noam, can I run some guest ideas past you real quick? Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, I sent uh, um, Periel a list but I just there's a few of them that you haven't yet approved. Ricky Schlott. You know Ricky. She's a friend of Mike Moynihan's. She's a student activist. Yeah. Okay, Ricky Schlott is approved. Michio Kaku is a uh, CUNY professor, astrophysicist, and he also knew some of the people in the Manhattan Project. He was a protege of Edward Teller. That'd be great. Okay, Michio Kaku is approved. Tony Woods, comic, Chappelle favorite. Yeah, that'd be great. Or Tony Woods. Yeah. Um, Getty Lee, if we can get him, which we probably can't, but of course, he's a prog- progressive rock legend. I assume that's a yes. Yes, yes. Uh, Diane Forrest, the world's oldest female comic, who already get it to Guinness Book of World Records. She's 88 years old, still doing comedy. Uh, I don't know. Okay, never mind her. Okay, so we got everything except Diane Forrest, and of course, the rest of my list has already been approved. And you wanted to talk about Dave Smith, who we have. Oh, yeah, so Dan on. got me in trouble with Dave Smith. Well, I don't know if I got you in trouble. You got you in trouble, I guess. You. I brought up Dave Smith, and you then responded that you thought because you brought it up
1: on on a live mic, and I had to, uh, uh, you know. So, but anyway, it paid off. It paid off because uh, he's he's agreed to do the show after after uh, not uh, being able to get in touch with him for a while. He's
0: agreed to do the show. And uh, Dave Smith is a libertarian uh, comedian who has some views that I think are, my guess would be, uh, fairly opposite Gnome's views. So it should be a lively discussion. I'm pretty libertarian, so let's
1: talk about the Aaron Mate debate. Okay. We can First of all, well, uh, a lot of people were interested. Dan Dan had a meltdown and grabbed the mic and started screaming. Uh, uh, that, that, was, that was a less... moment. But I'll tell you this. Uh, somebody wrote me uh, said, you know what? Dan may have had a meltdown, but he was absolutely right about the point he was making.
0: It was that Coleman that wrote that? Yes. Was Coleman, was that Coleman wrote told me that yesterday. Yeah. I don't know it's, if you want to discuss that in more detail or just refer people to the debate. That's not on this podcast. That was on the podcast you do with Hot Tam.
1: Yeah, but then I then I actually placed it on our on our okay. thing here too. And um, so uh, you know the I I posted this this is interesting. So I posted the Aaron Mate debate at like three a.m. and I went to it. I did a lot of work. I looked up every single source, every single fact. I I I haven't done as much work since I was cramming for exams in school. And so let's say I put it up at three a.m. is approximately right. By three ten a.m., at like thirty thirty five, the most nasty comments about how awful it was, what what an idiot I am, and I, and I wrote back and said, "It's it's been minutes. You couldn't even have gotten through the first part of the introduction right. yet." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. and then it really hit me that that um, this is who we're dealing with, you know, and, and it's not just one side of the issue. This is what the world is like. So I I stopped the comments. And um, oh, so you, you, there's no more comments on that. I'm not taking more comments because. Okay, yeah, it's probably just uh, as well. i, I, I like that. I like your that. mic's not working. I'm I'm happy to take comments from. Uh, is her mic working? I don't hear. I don't hear. Talk, Periel. No, that your uh, mic is not controlled by that. What do you mean? That's the headphones. Jesus Christ! Are you a producer? What, what, not, I, you know? You know what works? Twist your nose. Camera that'll camera turn. That'll turn camera. up the volume. Is a sound engineer? No, that's our our our, uh, our. Okay, so is my mic working? No. Okay, not, well, I don't There it is. Now mind. it's working. Okay. I liked it better the so, other way. So
2: it's controlled over there. Turn it up. Yeah. So you want to take that comment back?
1: That your mic wasn't working?
2: No, that like I'm somehow supposed to fix it from over here. I
1: didn't say you were supposed to fix it. I thought it was funny that you're turning up your headphones to make your yeah. mic work here. Anyway, so this you know, this this podcast goes from like the greatest intellectuals in the world to like this. Anyway. <laughs> t- mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, we'll be followed by Steven Pinker in a second. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, so I decided like, you know what, hello, sir, come on yeah, in, come on yeah, in.
0: We're just finishing. Dan Sonora is here. He's our guest. We'll be, we'll be chatting with him in just a couple minutes, but first, I guess no yeah. one wants to finish well, I'm interested in this. Come on in, sir. Come on in. So, uh,
1: so I, I, it occurred to me that what is the point of, um, engaging in comments, with people who obviously haven't read anything, you know, I mean, haven't watched anything. So I, so I, and, and so in this Finkelstein debate, even though we got a deluge of pro Finkelstein comments, obviously from his followers, I think we have to remember that, um, (laughs) very few of them probably watched that much of it, or no matter what they had seen, no matter what they had seen would have had a different view. And that the important thing to remember is that this is, these comments are a small fraction of the viewers. Hundreds of thousands of people saw that. And my intention, our job, is to reach the reachable. Right. And because I, after I saw those Mate comments, I was like, fuck this. I'm, just, I'm not even going to do any more podcasts. But then I said, wait a second. There's plenty of people who are watching this who are actually unsure or they don't know the history, and they're they're open to learning something, and 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 um, they they could be uh, this could even be a straw on the camel's back of their eventual change of mind. Like people don't change their minds instantly. Come sit down, sir. They don't change or, 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 they don't change their minds instantly. Sometimes they change their minds cumulatively. So if they got some facts, if they found it interesting to know that. Aaron Mate, who I like, but Aaron Mate, this this you know supposed world expert in the Arab Israeli conflict, didn't even know that Jordan attacked Israel, which I just found astounding. I just found it astounding that this guy who was out there tweeting has millions of followers thought that Israel attacked Jordan in 1967. This is just you know just, so and and as I'm as I'm going back and and researching some of his arguments, I constantly find myself at the same Noam Chomsky essay, meaning that he's really just—I kind of—I kind of, I kind of uh, referred to this in the introduction. They, they cut and paste a line from here, a line from there. They don't do any serious, deep um, uh, research that I, I can see. I mean, I don't want to—I don't want to um, dismiss him because he's—he's—he's he, he's, 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 well read. He's read books and stuff, but he does seem to just grab at a thread. Uh, of a Chomsky thread. And there's no, you know, you think it's the tip of an iceberg? No, it's just an ice cube floating on, <laughs> floating on the water. It looks like the tip of an iceberg.
2: So I really liked the idea of you sh- shutting off comments because I think that what winds up happening is. Can you turn her up a little bit there? Yeah, is that people wind up chiming in. They know nothing, but then they feel it's like this self satisfied, like smug yeah. feeling like, oh, I got mine in. Also, and I think that if you shut that off, you sort of kill that um, opportunity and instinct.
1: Also, the, they're so nasty. Well, I mean, they it, can
2: be. Everybody can be very brave when they're sitting behind the anonymity. Yeah,
1: but literally, everybody is so nasty. It's astounding to me. Um, all right. So, uh, we our our guest of honor is here. So, uh, oh, well, my, let me do the interesting. So that's what I do so well. Please do that.
0: Yeah, Dan Senor, I believe it's pronounced. Senor,
1: I, to- Dan- I By the way, I told him like five times before you he got here.
0: I'm well, i
3: I'm C- senile. <laughs> C- 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 Am I on? Yeah, you're on. Yeah. Do I need these or no? You don't have to. You don't
0: it, have it's, it's to. Girl, yeah, go ahead. Unless we play a clip from something, and then you'll. We
1: have a one. substitute engineer uh, here today, Mike, and and he's fantastic. But you know, he's just getting he's getting his sea C- legs with the new equipment. So you know, hang. I think I think we got it all. Well, I saw Morning Joe recently. It was worse than this. Go ahead. He's. Can I just say Senor? Senor. Senior. Senior,
3: my Senior. whole Senior. life it's been butchered.
1: Well, All right, Cariel, so I what's the worst? Senior. Now, 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 Mike's not working. Listen, I'm, I'm, even even I can uh, even I can lose my my patience. Now, her mic's not working again. Go ahead.
3: Senior. Uh huh. Yeah. Zener. I mean, my whole life.
0: I would go with Senior though, I mean.
3: I know, some people say cool, that, throw you know, us till day on. Yeah, so, not? no, Senor, so it's Senor.
0: Well, he's an American Canadian columnist, eh. a dual citizen, I yeah. guess.
3: No, single, no, lived in Canada for a number of years, was never a citizen.
0: Okay, he's from Upstate Utica. Dan's Canadian as well, but. Well, my parents are, I'm not. Although I had citizenship until I was 26 or so, and then I didn't what whatever I had to do. What is it about people who've
3: lived in Canada, they want to quit? oh no, I never lived no, there. I something... oh, never lived there, okay. My yeah. parents
0: are Canadian, right. I got citizenship at birth, and then at 26, I had to fill out some paperwork that I never did because I didn't even know I was a dual citizen the whole time. Uh, in any case, he's from Utica. We upstate people, we always it's like hey, we're, we're 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 batting hundred on upstaters. They're always nice. And he's the author of a book, "The Genius of Israel," along with Saul Singer. Uh, and it's a New York Times. It's it's a, a best selling. Uh, but he also wrote the best selling author, uh, the best selling book, "Startup Nation." Um, so anyway, the genius of Israel, the surprising resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world. Thank you. And you have a podcast
1: is called Call Me Back. Call Me Back. I thought it was called me back. I did not want to get it wrong, which which I've listened to for the first time in the last few weeks. Uh, and it's fantastic. Thank you. It's one of the best podcasts. What's, I've ever what's heard.
0: the theme of the podcast,
3: Jim? Various
1: things, but lately it's obviously it's been on uh, on Israel.
3: It was it was geopolitics and macroeconomics and US politics, basically, with a smattering of Israel in there every few episodes but since October 7th every single episode has been about Israel and I've gone from doing it once a week to the first couple weeks of the Gaza war I did about every two weeks I mean sorry I did about every day for a couple weeks but now I do it about three times a week and it's just it's about I talk to Israelis on the ground every single episode almost every single episode Israeli journalists Israeli officials Israelis living this trauma.
0: Well, we like to consider ourselves the podcast of record on this conflict. Uh, <laughs> and Noam's, Noam, Noam, you had an amazing compliment from this woman, Molly, with like a million Twitter followers, Molly Hemingway. Is that her from the Federalist? I, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, one. Yeah, is yeah. That, is yeah. that is She's an important yeah. person, I well, guess. She's, she's is, got a million yeah, Twitter followers. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't. I claim no credit. Noam's been doing a great job. Uh, interviewing uh, people about this conflict. Anyway, no, I'm away. I know you have a lot of. So problems. okay, but uh, now,
1: I, now we have been talking about Israel nonstop, and of course we're going. I noticed talk, that we're going like to, every episode. It's like my
3: it's like my podcast. We're
1: going to talk about Israel with you, yeah. especially with you. Uh, I, but, but I want to ask you some political questions too, because you are into politics as yes, well. Yes. And uh, and that'll of course lead us into Israel anyway. But I just do want to ask you one other question before. It, there's some dark. Good luck that you've had that you're coming out with a book on the genius of Israel. This reminds me of when these guys, it was almost like a crowd-funded level documentary on Ed Koch, like 15 years ago. Remember that? I
3: remember, that was good.
1: It was very good. It was good, but it came out just how the am week, I doing? Just yeah. the weekend that Koch died. Yeah, and it was all this, and and of yeah. course it floated. There. So this is kind of. The, situation the opposite you're...
3: experience of Jack, Jack Welch, whose book, his big release date, was September 11th, 2001. Oh, his book. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, I didn't think, never in a million years could I have imagined that, that October 7th would would obviously coincide with, be a month before our book was released. Our publisher kept trying me to get, trying to get us to delay the book release, long before October 7th. So the pub date was November 7th. He reaches out to us, late spring, says, you really want your book to come out this year? because you're writing a book about Israeli resilience while Israeli society is splitting apart. Israel's in the depths of judicial reform in 2023. The whole country, hundreds of thousands of people storming the streets every night protesting. It was like, really, the, the peoples were, people were at each other's throats. He's like, you really wanna come out? You're talking about, the whole book is about Israeli solidarity. Are you crazy? And we argued to him, We're going to explain how Israel's going to bounce back. Yes, Israel's in the depth of division and despair, and we're going to demonstrate how Israel's got the building blocks to pull back. He says, okay, okay. So then fast forward, he says, we got another problem. Two weeks before your book comes out, exactly two weeks, we've just learned the pub date, Britney Spears' memoir is coming out. She's going to knock (laughs) you right off the bestseller list. This is terrible. And I tried to persuade the folks at Simon & Schuster that Britney Spears and I... (laughs) Yeah, may have many things in common but we are not targeting the same demographic (laughs) okay so he says okay okay then he comes back to me and he says um new problem I take your point you and Brittany are not this is you know a book about Israeli resilience and Britney Spears are not necessarily going after the same reader. But Gal Gadot has a memoir. No, but close. <laughs> Barbara Streisand. <laughs> oh, <laughs> on the exact same pub date on November seven, Barbara Streisand's a previous era's Gal Gadot. Barbara Streisand's book is coming out, and don't tell me that there aren't Jewish book buyers who are going to be deciding between your book and Barbara Streisand's. And I said, fine, you got me, but different generation. And they may buy two books. Like maybe our books, you know, you search for one book and then they say recommend it. You know, they give you the option. Maybe they'll recommend. And he's like, okay. And then, But he was really worried about the um, the judicial reform. And I said, Israel's incredibly resilient. Part of what we do in our book is lay the history of Israel tearing itself apart, going back to the founding of the state. This happens about every, every 10 or 15 years. The reason in 2023 we were so focused on it is because we all have these things. We all have phones and social media and it's everything's chronicled. But if you go back in Israeli history, in almost every decade, there's been a, like a moment where the country you thought was like about to go over the edge and it bounced back. No one here was paying attention. We go through in the book each of those moments and how Israel bounced back and Israel bounced back from this. He said, okay. And then October 7th happened. And what we are seeing now is, and I'm happy to talk about it, we are seeing the resilience of Israeli society. It's, it's horrific and traumatic what happened to Israel at a government level and at a military level, but at a societal level, what Israel is experiencing right now, I don't think you would see in any affluent Western democracy in the world today. And so I just think there's a lot for those of us in the US who live in a dysfunctional society to learn from.
1: Now, okay, well, let's start here because then we'll get to the politics. First of <laughs> all, I think your publisher was wrong anyway, because how you know how they say, all publicity is good publicity, no such thing as bad publicity. The fact that Israel is in the news yeah. means that people are more likely to buy the book, even if it's contrary to what's in the news, as opposed to if Israel was like a tranquil state that fell off everybody's radar, nobody's going to want to pick up a book, The Genius of Israel. Israel's in the top of the—hey, this is weird. The Genius of Israel, they're coming apart over there.
3: Right, right. You, right it's, it's, write a book, it's, the it's Genius It's like provocative.
1: Of, Write a book, The Genius of Hamas. Right. Now is the time to come out with it, right? right. <laughs> it's
3: <laughs> Yeah. I it mean, someone put it to me when we wrote our first book, Startup Nation, which was about how Israel had had developed the most important tech economy outside of Silicon Valley in the world in the least likely places, and we explained how Israel did it. So someone said to me, well, the analogy would be if you guys wrote Startup Nation and it was published while Israel's tech economy was in meltdown. Be like, really? You're writing about the dynamism of the... You probably wouldn't want that, but...
1: I still think it might. Really? Yeah, just because because you say- You're what? part of the conversation. Well, people might yeah, want- Because what's, this is so weird. What, right. Like, like, it's right. like a, a heterodox right. view on it.
2: Right.
0: It's well, also people might want some optimism to well, go with true. the grim reality. It's like that old joke about the two Jews and one says, well, why are you reading? Uh, you know, why aren't you reading the Jewish newspaper? Why are you reading the German newspaper? Well, because the German newspaper says we control the media, we're doing great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: anyway.
0: So
3: now- uh, it's, so, so By the way, was, the New York Times review said explicitly- the worst timing for a book you could ever possibly imagine. New York Times I, said that. I rest my case. And then they also said, but if Israel manages to bounce out of this moment, it will be for reasons explained in this book. So they oh. but yeah. it
2: looks like the joke's on everyone because it's a New York Times bestseller, That's- so everybody could say what they want. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so
1: one of the knocks on Israel is that and they and they really managed to find words that sound so uh, chilling and threatening, so ominous, they call it an ethnostate. Israel is an ethnostate. But the kernel of truth in that comment, is that the reason that Israel is so resilient now? Because of the bond of a people.
3: I can come back to the whole ethno-state question. But, yeah. but let, me, let, me, let me get to your, the second part of that question, very specific terms. Why do we think Israel is so resilient? Why do we think there's so much solidarity? Because it has, first of all, Israel has political polarization. Every wealthy Western democracy today is going through some kind of crisis of political polarization. Why that is is beyond the scope of this book, but it is. It's happening in the United States, obviously, since 2016, certainly happening in the UK, also since 2016, since Brexit. You can go to just about every European country. You're seeing these societies, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in France storming the streets to protest Macron and his various reforms turning violent. I mean, you country, but... It's some the of these, elites versus the deplorables all over the world. crazy parties getting elected on the extreme yeah. right in, um, in Germany. So there's something going on. So we're not saying Israel is is immune to political polarization. As we saw in 2023, it has a lot of it. What we argue is that Israel has shock absorbers, societal shock absorbers built into it, that just when it gets really, really tense, the country kind of pulls back. So what what are those shock absorbers? I think that gets to the heart of your question. So I'll, I'll cite two or three, we go through a bunch of the book. One, national service, compulsory national service. Most Israelis at age 18 serve males for three years, females for two years, unless they go on to officer training school or into one of the elite units and serve even more years. But the overwhelming majority of Israelis serve in, serve in some kind of national compulsory, most cases, military service. So that accomplishes three things. One, it develops some incredible skills for these young people at key points in their development, much better experience than they get if they were to attend an American college, an elite American college. When we worked on Startup Nation, Eric Schmidt, who at the time was at Google, told us, and Google at that point was hiring in something like over 100 countries. He told us, you take the average Israeli 25-year-old and you put him or her up against their peers anywhere in the world, Google will hire the Israeli because you just don't have at that age people who have accumulated that kind of experience that Israelis have because they all go through this experience where they're leading people, managing people, having to make life and death decisions, lives on the line, managing massive assets. So that's one benefit of the national service. But what we focus in in this book on are two other aspects. One, when you are serving in a military unit, you are serving with people from all walks of life because it's compulsory. So the son of a cab driver is in the same unit as the son of a tech billionaire. Okay, now in our country, tell me how the son of a cab driver develops a real bonding experience with the son of a tech billionaire. You have an ultra-religious Jew serving that unit with a tattooed ponytail, ultra-chic, hyper-secular Tel, Aviv- Tel Avivian in that same unit. You have Jews from whose families come from Yemen or Morocco or Turkey or Iraq or Iran, and you have Jews from. You know, from the West, from Poland or from the United States or Canada, they're all, you know, you've, you've you've people in that in that in the hull of a tank who are from big cities in Israel and from struggling towns. Can
1: I make a comment here? Yeah, you, and you probably know about. You're describing almost exactly the opposite. Of what Charles Murray described in his first chapter of "Coming Apart," totally. as to why America was coming apart,
3: lost shared experiences,
1: the lack of shared experiences. Totally. Where you talked about how it used to be in the same neighborhood you'd have the son of the executive yeah. IBM yeah. with the contractor. Yeah, and now everybody's separated.
0: Yeah. By the way, um, I would suggest uh, that the comedy, the stand-up comedy world, maybe the closest thing you get to the son of a tech billionaire uh, bonding with the son of a cab driver. We. I mean, it,
3: as comedians or- in the, the,
0: For example, there's a comedian uh, named, uh, what's his name? His father's a billionaire, Julius Kroll, Nick Kroll. His father's a billionaire or a, nearly a billionaire. Yeah, I know. And he's a stand-up comic and yeah. and you got Tracy Morgan who, I mean, I came from a somewhat more modest means, say, <laughs> um, and they're colleagues. Yeah. So, you know, we got a big tent here. Yeah. All right, all right so, so we, we got
3: okay. so, so 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 that brings everyone together. Now, keep in mind, they do this for two or three years or longer- and then they have what's in the Hebrew word is miluim, which is reserve duty. So then they have reserve duty. So after they, they finish the regular service until their 40s, they get most of them go back every year with their original unit. So it's like a reunion every year with the people you served, 25, 30 years old, 35, all the way to your 40. So you stay in touch with these people. When you have that kind of experience, it is very hard to look at your fellow citizen as the other because, like I said, you've been working in a warehouse on a military base with them. You've been in the hull of a tank with them. You've been you've gone through basic training with them. Mika Goodman, who's someone we quote extensively in the book, who's a very serious um, public intellectual in Israel. He's he's got the most popular Hebrew language podcast in Israel uh, about political issues. He told us that after Trump was elected in 2016, he came to the United States for some conference. He was meeting with a bunch of academics like him. His like peers in the United States, like he was at Harvard, and I think he was meeting with academics at Harvard. And they were saying they were, he listened to their conversation and they were like, you know, I met a Trump voter. Let me tell you what he sounds like. You know, or I read a study about the Trump voter. Let me tell you what they think, as though they were some kind of lab animal, like a lab experiment. And Mika said to me, Are they talking about their fellow citizens? It was so perplexing to him that even – he says, look, guys I serve with in my unit, some of them, they're nuts politically, (laughs) like nuts. I disagree with them vociferously, but I would never view them as the other. I mean I've been in the hull of a tank with these people, so I'm with them all the time. So we have incredible bonds. We just have different political worldviews. So I think the national service does that. It brings people together.
1: Can can we talk more about that? Because it's such a profound point. Some, it's something I've thought about a lot. You're, you're really, in my opinion, you're, you're discussing where this is really human psychology and and visceral instincts overcoming, you know, intellectual things. In other words, there's no substitute for being in the same room with someone, for spending time with someone. You can't read about it in books. It's not. It's not really about the fact that you disagree on policies that's driving you apart. It's because you're living separate lives. That's right. And you think it's because the politics are driving you apart. When
3: you're in basic training, with a fellow citizen, you don't care what their position is on judicial reform. We be, because it's it's you're 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 not dealing with you're dealing with the essence of life when you you're going through basic training. It's just one of their aspects
1: as right. opposed exactly. to defining them. Exactly. Yeah. But
3: what we do in this country yeah. is we look at people we disagree with, and because we have no shared experiences with yeah. them. All we know about them is what their political yeah. views are. So, well,
1: we, so we, that, that defines them. Let me continue on this. And So you, you're, I believe, friends with John Putthorris.
3: Yeah, very close friend.
1: And you probably know stuff about this that I'm only curious about. But his father, Norman Putthorris, at least at first, was a pretty strong Trump supporter. Uh-huh. And he did this uh, interview in the Claremont Review of Books. Yeah. I don't even know that publication, but the name sticks in my head. And right. he said stuff very much along the lines of what you're saying. He said, how can you support Trump? He says... He reminds me of the guys I served with. Oh. This is exactly what he says. He says, this was like the, the common sense guy. Yeah. yeah, they were a little rough around the edges, but they were good guys. I right. liked those guys. I respected those guys. Yeah. He's one of them. I recognize those guys. I like him. This, right. is, what, this is something that Norman Pothart, the father,
3: yeah.
1: said which somehow, just because of his generation, the son would be less likely to come to that insight.
3: Yeah, because they don't have those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So and then and then lastly on the on the national service, the other aspect I think is is profound and powerful is the entire incentive system in Israeli societies, young people are growing up, is is focused on rewarding them for thinking themse- thinking of themselves as part of a team, as part of a group, as part of a community. It's 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 not about your own individual excellence. So in the US, we reward young people as they matriculate in life for individual excellence. How are your grades? How did you do on your SATs? How did you, you know, what was your reference on your job, summer job? It's all about getting into college, which is a very individual experience. It's, an, it's all about individual merit. Now Israel's a meritocracy too, but merit is judged not only on individual excellence, you've gotta be able to perform, but it's all about from when they're a young age, how they are as part of a team. So the most elite units in the military that are, are like unbelievable launching pads for making it in high tech in Israel, you can't, it's like the equivalent of getting a degree from MIT or Harvard or Stanford. You can't get into those units. You could be a phenomenal talent with individual skills, but if you're not a team player, you won't get into those units. And so it changes the way the whole culture operates because young people as they are they're fo- they're focusing on how to win, how do I win? I mean we' we we it's very easy to teach young people what how, how to how to gain reward. Here we tell people young people to gain reward by their own individual excellence. in Israel, the military experience, it's a culmination of stages in life that's about how you deal on a team.
2: But it even starts younger, because most Israeli kids go to the Tzofim.
3: Tzofim, exactly. Well, so you know Tzofim. So the scouting movement is a big deal in Israel. Overwhelming majority do, scu- uh, do scouts, and it's all run by the kids. There's no adults who run it. So young people go through Tzofim, and then by the time they're 16 or 17, they're the ones running Tzofim, mm-hmm. and they bring in these other kids, and it's a child-run scouting movement that most Israelis go through and then they go from Sofim and then the next experience is the military.
2: So So it's it's instilled in them at a very young age. I think also the soldiers are trauma bonded obviously. And it's also something that they don't really talk about like over dinner. Right. right? So it's like a culture where you've been through this horrific usually experience and you have some sort of PTSD, but then you get back together, you know, once a month, or whatever, right. with your army buddies, right. and those are the people who you still are connected with. Um, it's like your
3: family. Yeah. It's like a family. Mm-hmm. No, no. The, 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 It's
2: really interesting. So
3: we have a chapter in the book where, where people say, I remember very difficult points in Israeli history, like Yossi Klein-Halevi uh, is an author, we, we quote extensively in the book, and he told us, during the second Intifada, you should tell people what that is. Okay, so the intif- the first Intifada was began in 1987 when there was a Palestinian protest movement against um, Israeli occupation of of it started in the Gaza Strip, but it was Gaza and the West Bank. And then there was peace process in 1993, the Oslo Peace Accords that was going to put Israel and and the Palestinians on the path to a two state solution. It fell apart. We can go through the whole history, but in but in the late in 2000, basically a second Intifada began. Uh, just after peace talks broke down at Camp David, that Bill Clinton, um, after Ehud Barak, who was Prime Minister the time, offered Yasser Arafat uh, 95, 98% of what he was asking for, according to Bill Clinton, Araf- Arafat rejected it, and then a second intifada began. And what it consisted of, which at the time seemed like the worst Israel has ever seen until October 7th, but at the time it was a campaign of suicide bombings in major cities in Israel, blowing up buses, blowing up pizza shops blowing up discotheques blowing up I mean I can go on and on and on and every one of these incidents 10, 20, 30 people would be killed sometimes young people would be
1: killed I, I'd compared it more than once already to like a slow rolling version of October 7th Yeah. just spread out over many years about the same number of people
3: killed Yeah. the same cruelty it's a, it's, it's a good right that I actually it's similar. funny you just mentioned John Podhortz he met, I, I had. I have a text from him from the weekend of October 7th where he, I, me, I have this like visceral memory, I have so many memories of that weekend, but one of which was Podhortz texted me saying, this weekend as many Israelis are going to get killed in one weekend as the entire second intifada, which is, you're right, it was like yeah. a two-plus two year, two year period. But Yossi klein Halevi told us that his kids at the time were teenagers, and they were processing the second Intifada because they had lost people, they had lost peers with their friends, like with their friend groups, with their, it wasn't, he said, we knew very little about where they were at. They were processing it with, so it's, they already had developed these communals, we, we, communal um, arrangements, if you will, or communal groups. We, it's a chevra is the word in Hebrew, which is, it's like a brotherhood or a sisterhood of 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 friends. And um, it's a big part of Israeli life. I will, I want to mention one other thing because I think it's important. So it's not just the experience of national military service. Israel also has something we don't have, which we could learn from, with national rituals. National rituals that the entire country participates in. Also, I say this is extremely important. Whenever people go to Israel for the first time, I say, I always ask them, will you be there over Shabbat? Will you be there over the Sabbath? If they say no, I say, extend your trip. You have to be that You won't understand this country unless you're there over Shabbat. Or I say, if they're going in the spring, will you be there during Memorial Day? Or Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day? Or Israel Independence Day? So, why, or Yom Kippur. Or Yom uh, Kippur. <laughs> so why are all these important? In Israel, the overwhelming majority of Israelis have the same experience on Shabbat. 70 to 80% of Israelis have a semi or very traditional Shabbat dinner on a Friday night. They are with family, often two, three, sometimes four generations. They're with close friends every Friday night. When you're in Israel, you feel like the country slows down, almost stops on Friday nights. Now, and like I said, it's it's sacrosanct. It's every Friday night. Now, when you when I say this, we call we have a chapter in the book called Thanksgiving every week. We say that it's like Thanksgiving every single week. When I cause when I describe to Americans what Shabbat is like in Israel, where I say, Tell me an example, I say to Americans, give me an example where you're with your family. Here we are on the eve of Thanksgiving. So when you're with your family, sometimes several generations or and or close friends, very predictably, it's untouchable. You're not going to work during that day. You're not. It's just, And you're having that ritual, and you know the majority of the country is doing the same thing. Tell me an example. And they always say Thanksgiving. Okay, I say great. Give me a second example. Give me one other. And that's when they get stuck. They usually say, sadly, Christmas. No. Because a lot of Americans <laughs> oh. don't celebrate Christmas. Oh. A lot of Americans, that's when they go away. That's they say um the Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's okay. They say people go to Super Bowl parties, and it's a sense that I'm doing something. I'm watching the game. I'm doing and the whole country is doing. You feel like the whole country is engaged. Now, by the way, I'm a big football fan. I love the Super Bowl. I love the ritual of it. I'm a New York Jets fan, so. Well, that has presents its own set of challenges. in terms of the Super Bowls, but um, a Jewish poignancy to that too. right? There is a little heartbreak. I tell my kids it builds character. It's a the Jets are the most Jewish team. Um, they know dealing with adversity. Um, but um, but so they say the Super Bowl, and then I say, okay, that's the best you can do. You, you can't come up with one other, and they can't. So I said, okay, so now imagine a society where every Friday night you get Thanksgiving. So. All these young people, they live their lives, they spread out all over, they do their jobs, they go to the army, and then every Friday they come back with their parents and their grandparents. And some do it more religiously and traditionally, some do it much more assimilated and you know very secular or not, but they're all basically doing the same thing. It's a personal ritual, a familial ritual, and it's collective. You know the whole country is experiencing it. We don't have that here. Memorial Day. So if you if you have been, been to Israel during Memorial Day, it's no. That's with the siren. The siren. It's the
1: most I want to. I want to. I want to yeah. get to other things. Okay, go ahead. Only because um, yeah. I I, I uh, there's so much and yeah, yeah, I, I, I have ahead. a of time. Um, as three Jews here, <laughs> or at least as as this what you're saying reverberates very deeply with me, um, and I think parallel to it. Dan less so because he's uh, doesn't have much connection to Israel. Anyway, um, but let's let's jump to American politics for a second, then jump back. Okay. How has it? Uh, well, you could you could really talk about anything you want. The issues on my mind are Biden's age, Biden being behind the polls, the effect on uh on Biden's staunch pro-Israel attitudes. Will it actually hurt him uh, in the election or not? What's your what's your lay of the land uh, on American politics right now?
3: I think Biden. I mean, I don't need to. You just look at the polling. I think Biden is. um Quite vulnerable uh, in his in the reelection campaign. If you look at the New York Times siena poll, he's he's basically losing to Trump in every battleground state, with the exception of Wisconsin, where he's ahead by two points. He could lose the popular vote, even right? Yeah, yeah. According, that's that. according to the, the most recent NBC poll shows that he could his favorable unfavorables have gotten so high he could lose the popular vote. Biden's in real trouble. Um, if if uh, I were advising Joe Biden, and I'm not. At my politics are to the right of Joe Biden's, but if I were advising uh, Joe Biden, I would suggest that he not run for re-election, announce that he's basically a wartime president, which he effectively is. He's got his hands full with Russia, Ukraine, with Israel, Hamas, trying to contain the situation in the Middle East that so doesn't spiral into a kind of 1973-style regional war. He could have a flare-up on China and Taiwan. He's got his hands full. And he doesn't have time and it would be irresponsible for him to expend his time uh trying to get reelected and there's a very talented bench of democrats who any any number of whom could run for president and he should be a one-term president and spend the next 14 months whatever it is um doing the job being commander in chief obviously he's not taking my advice he's running for re-election. do i think the war between israel and hamas will hurt him politically no I know it is unpopular with his base, and I see the same polling. Oh my God, it's so unpopular with his base. First of all, look, it's never good in politics for your base to be frustrated or disappointed, but at some point, it's not going, for his base, this election is not going to be a referendum on Joe Biden. It's going to be Joe Biden in contrast with someone else. And I suspect whoever that person is in contrast with, most likely will be someone, his base very much does not want to be president, So his base will come home and rally for Biden. I think the opportunity for Biden in this environment is the crazy explosion of anti-Semitism that we are seeing right now, which is, I'm shocked by it. I mean, I I thought I couldn't be shocked. I mean, I'm shocked by what's happening. I'm the, you know, I'm the son of Holocaust uh, Holocaust survivor. the stories of the Holocaust. You and
1: Norman Finkelstein, both. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, until there,
3: right. Um, I, 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 um, it was like in the water, you know, growing up for us, the stories of the Holocaust. I never, as much as I was so aware of the Holocaust, and it's a big part of our family's identity, I never felt personally vulnerable Right. until 2023. Now I feel personally, physically vulnerable. I feel that way for my kids. My kids go to a Jewish day school. I mean, it is, I spoke at an event last night in Detroit, a Jewish event, that I, all these guys are around me, these security guys, they're like following me everywhere I go, I'm like, what, what is going on here? And they're like, in this environment, we've made sure, the sponsor of the event said we have to make sure that, it, it's like the sense, it's, it's um, it, there's a menacing feel to this moment. Now, that's the way I feel. What I am struck by is the number of friends of mine who are not Jewish. Who are not personally vulnerable are flipped out too by what's going on. They're looking at this, this, they're saying to me, they're saying to me, and they're not Jewish, and they're not really connected, they have no real connection to Israel. They said, wait a minute. On October 7th, we thought the outrage around the world would be directed at the people who launched the the massacre against the Jews. That's who we thought the uh, we never thought there would be outrage against the Jews. It seems to be that there's outrage against the Jews because they object to being slaughtered, and as opposed to thinking what they thought would happen, which was the outrage would be against Hamas. So they are so disoriented, and they're watching this on college campuses. They're watching it in the streets of major cities. They're listening to Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, literally cite the protests in Paris, London, New York, and Washington, as though, well, look at this. We've lit up these people. We've empowered these people. They're like they're... You know, they're like a fifth column for them, the way Natsarala was talking about it. So my non Jewish friends are looking at all of this and they see it as and they're right as an extension or almost like a symptom of something that had been bubbling up before October seventh here. No, but you We've been talking about it for are years. Are you
0: getting that that sense from your non Jewish friends?
3: Are they freaked I out by it? I don't have any non Jewish. Okay.
0: My
1: wife is my wife's not Jewish. She's totally freaked out.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tearing down the posters of the children, the hostages, and the.
2: Or saying that the, they don't even exist, that it's Israeli right. propaganda. Right. And
3: so they're freaked out by it. And so I think this is Joe Biden's sister soldier moment. So well, if he uh, if he looks these protesters in the eye and says, you are completely out of touch, you have lost your minds, like if he confronts them, it may annoy his base. His base will come around. Clinton had his sister soldier moment. He took on his base. His base came around. But the potential for Biden, if he really is running for reelection, is there about five million voters in this country, independent voters who swing. Some of them voted for, for Obama. Then they voted for Trump. Then they voted for Biden. You know, we'll see who they vote for this time. But they, they they're up for grabs. And I think if they see Biden taking on the because in that same NBC poll that has that has the Israel the war. The Israel-Hamas war hurting Biden. That same poll, if you look at the uh, approval rating of different names and organizations, one of the names they put forward is Hamas. Hamas's approval rating in the United States is 7%. It's it's like, if you can believe it, it's even lower than Congress's approval rating. Okay, it's 7%. I think if Biden says, if you're carrying water for that organization, you are against America. It's not just about being against the Jews. It's not just being against – you are against America, and I think it's a winning political issue.
1: So I want to add two points. One one will end in a question, I guess. So the first one is – I probably share your general politics. I don't know your politics that well, but um, looking back on the last eight years or so, I think that – It worked out. I didn't support Trump. It worked out with Trump in the sense that we got through the four years. Nothing terrible happened. I know people say January sixth, but nothing terrible happened to the country. And we have something pretty strong to show for it from our point of view, which is the Supreme Court, which is – I wouldn't say it's far right, but it's pretty staunchly civil libertarian. And um, for instance – if the election had gone the other way, we would have had racial preferences for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And now we've gotten rid of them. And I think most people are happy we did. So that that worked out. Mm-hmm. And I think that if Trump were president, and I think we should thank God essentially for Joe Biden as well right now, despite the fact we might disagree with him on this and that.
3: You mean on because, Israel? Yeah. He's well, been amazing. Well,
1: because if Trump had been president, I, I think, you know, the. in my opinion— The leader of the party always has a gravitational effect on the people of that party. So when the president supports Israel like this, many people are loyal Democrats. It's okay. And they fall into line because that's the position of the president. We saw people take ridiculous positions because that was Trump's position. Mm -hmm. If Trump had been president and he had given Israel the same green light, which really Biden has given them, I think we'd have a lot more trouble to the left of Trump containing this, a lot more trouble— and we, you see the squad and all of it getting a lot more purchase and a lot freer to talk. And you see people who want, who are hoping to run for president in the next uh, election trying to position themselves to take advantage of this anti-Jewish reaction. So I think we should thank our lucky stars that it worked out the way we did.
3: I will – I hadn't thought of that. And I do think Biden taking the position he has taken on Israel, which – There will be points I'm sure in the months ahead where I disagree with what he's going to do on Israel, but so far, if you had told me on October on October sixth that the next day Hamas was going to unleash this massacre on Israel, and President Biden within 24 hours would come out with an incredibly powerful statement making clear whose side he's on, and telling the bad actors in the region not to think for a second about capitalizing on the attack on Israel, and deployed the military assets, the aircraft carriers, the squadrons of aircraft, the 2,000 Marines. We I can go on and on and on uh, that he's sent to the to the uh, Mediterranean, the, the bunker busters and other music munitions he's sending to Israel. And then most importantly, he gets on Air Force One and he flies to Israel while it's at war. And he goes to a war cabinet meeting in Israel. He attends like he's a participant with the war cabinet. And he gives this very powerful speech from Israel. I'm just... I I couldn't have imagined it. Yeah. By by the way, I say thank God he's president and not Obama. If you oh, look at what Obama okay. said, Harrison. did you see what Obama said? Oh, uh, the worst. Yeah. I mean, and I just thought to myself, these are these are two different worldviews in the uh, Democratic t- part. Tell Lizzo, t- t- he said that it's
1: uh, it, it, there's no justification for what Hamas did, but it's also true that the occupation is unbearable.
3: And We all and we all have blame. We all care. <laughs> all blame. complicit. All complicit. By the way, the key word you just said there. Is but this is this is to me the tell. I always listen when people are analyzing the situation because I do not believe October seventh and post October seventh is a is a is a period for nuance. I'm normally quite tolerant of nuance in I'm political you, debates. Yeah. There's no nuance here, right? If you look at beheadings and then putting children in ovens and burning them alive and just mass slaughter and these and these filming of rapes, if I, I, if you look at that and you want to apply nuance. We're done. Like, I'm just not interested. First of all, okay. the word
1: unbearable, I, I, I joked about it. I said, I tell my wife, uh, yes, you're right. Cheating on you was unjustifiable. But it's also true that living with you is unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the but. It's the but. <laughs> when you say unbearable, you're
3: saying you're right. like, it, but, it's but, a non sequitur unless you mean to set them off against each other. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so I listen when people say, yes, it was horrible. But you need to understand. Whenever there's the yes, but, I'm like, stop. As opposed to Hillary, who said— Hillary was
1: fantastic. Of course his issues with the Palestinian occupation. We're not talking about that today. We're not going to dilute what went on today.
3: We could talk about it tomorrow, if you want. Not today. John Kirby, who's the the national security spokesman for the White House, national security council spokesman, so he's the White House press briefer on all national security matters. Yesterday, he he was at the podium. He was fantastic. He said—some reporter asked him, you know— Uh, Some groups are saying what Israel's doing is genocide. How does the White House feel? He says, wait, if you're gonna use the word genocide, let's use the word appropriately. There's only one party here that is trying to commit genocide, and it is Hamas. It is not Israel, it is Hamas. Israel may tragically kill or hurt Palestinians as part of prosecuting their defense of war, which is collateral damage, that's horrible, we encourage them to do less of it if they can, if it's within their control. That's not genocide. They're not trying to eliminate the Palestinian people. Hamas is read its charter. They are trying to eliminate the Jews from the river to the sea. That is genocide. It was just clear, no nuance. All right. The other thing I
1: want to say, and then actually, I'm going to play you a couple of things. The other thing I wanted to say is I that. Think you need your headphones for that. What's that? Oh, yeah, well, oh, you have right. that. Yeah. Well, when we play the video, to some extent, I blame. We're talking about all the anti-Semitism, all of it. Uh, I blame the American Jewish community, which for a, a long, long time now has not been. What's the? What's the? You know, if you're not, if you're not for yourself, who will be? Or whatever. We have not been for ourselves. We have, we have, uh, essentially thrown in the towel. Peer pressure, whatever it is, became ashamed to defend our positions didn't teach our children the most basic facts of of the conflict and it was and on top of the confluence of you know woke ideology that took over at the same time but people without even thinking about it when they see that the those people themselves don't even stand up for themselves what do I need to go look into their case i mean they're not making their own case so you just kind of get the vibe that it is an apartheid state. They do have something they need to be ashamed of. There is no good case we made for the Jews.
3: You you are zeroing in on an issue that I'm obsessed with. My mother, 85 years old, lives in Jerusalem, but as Holocaust survivor as I mentioned, has lived all over the world. When we were younger, she was a widow. She, had, you know, made didn't make much money, and I remember when she was dealing with her, you know, making her charitable allocations. Yeah she would only donate to Jewish organizations, to Jewish charities. And I'd say, but mom, what about this organization? What about that? She said, if Jews don't donate to Jewish organizations and Jewish charities, no one will. There's plenty of people who can donate to these other things. And it has always stuck with me. If you look at the data today, the biggest Jewish philanthropists in the United States, the wealthiest Jews in the United States, on average, and look, these different studies, roughly around 10% of their philanthropic dollars go to Jewish causes. Most of them are donating to non-Jewish causes. And I think you're right. I think hopefully October 7th was a wake-up call. You watch the reaction of these major institutions and these universities after Jewish philanthropists have showered resources on these institutions and been supportive and engaged engaged and, and civically minded. And they're effectively abandoned and i'm not saying we shouldn't still be engaged in the non-jewish world but we need to build up jewish institutions and we need to invest in institutions that, is gonna, that are going to develop the next generation of jews and that means jewish education making sure jews are literate young jews jewishly literate making sure they identify proudly as jews making sure they understand their relationship with israel cuz if you don't you know teach kids and 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 cultivate that kind of thinking and identity it's impossible. It's very hard to do later in life. And then when things get hot in a moment like this, if they're not, they don't, they don't feel any connection to it. They're like, well, "Why do I have to stick my neck out? I, this is not. That's not who I am." Now, now, apropos of, uh, of of
0: Jewish identity, are you horrified that that Noah married a non-Jewish woman? <laughs> you can be honest. Don't worry. Nothing you can say no. would offend me. My wife, I don't know how she'll <laughs> react. <laughs> I. Uh,
3: do you have children?
1: Uh, three yeah. I, I converted them well he's trying his best but we, we know wait, you converted them we took them to the conservative rabbi they dunked them in the water they said the magic words somehow it shoots to God and now they're they're Jewish. and you know I am i don't believe in God I'm not religious yeah. and it, you know and I yet some for some reason this ritual mattered to me I did it
3: yeah
1: at, at some point in their future how if they, they want that I don't know what's that how old are your kids 11 10 and 6
3: okay
2: but also, Juanita does every single Jewish holiday. I mean, she does more. She got
1: shadow banned on Instagram for posting so much uh, pro-Israel stuff. But a part of me said, you know, if she'd married a Palestinian guy, she probably like I don't. I don't know to what extent it. She she comes at it through love for me and her Jewish children, or through intellectual pursuits and. You Know, I hope that it's through it through an intellectual way that she gets there. I, I mean, I wouldn't look the gift horse in the mouth no right. matter what, but but she's very, very
0: emotional in this issue,
1: right?
3: Yeah, now. so my wife, who is a convert to Judaism, is the same way, she is so wrapped up in this moment. I mean, really
0: well, when Nita when didn't formally convert,
3: yeah, um, but she's it sounds like she's living in a oh no, she's yeah. she's
1: she's right. so, I'll I, so, okay, um, I, I. People listen to the show are going to get very mad because I'm always screaming at all the uh, the anti-Israel things and I'm being solicitous to you. So what I did was because I didn't feel like I could uh, make the arguments as well, I I, I um, took some video excerpts of some smart people making some of the the better arguments, some of the tougher uh, uh, arguments against Israel or to consider vis-a-vis Israel, and I want to play them. Some of them to you and get your take on them. So, so this is Robert Wright. You know him. I, 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 how would you describe Robert Wright?
3: I mean, he's, he's not. I mean, he's politically left. Uh, is he inherently hostile to Israel? I, mean, I, I don't know, but yeah. he, but he's
1: but he's definitely he's he's a sane, uh, respected intellectual voice. Yeah. He's not a crazy person. He's not a hater. Yeah, uh, but he's. Um, well you'll hear, but he's go ahead. Play, make sure it's loud enough too. Go ahead, Mike. So is. This is on the Glenn Lowry show. Yeah. Glenn Lowry is one of my heroes. I love yeah, Glenn we, Lowry. We
4: met. He's been here.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. a couple times.
4: Go ahead. So there are a few things here. Uh the PLO was once famous for killing civilians. They weren't always sitting down at a table. They changed. Okay. This this, this has been known to happen. I mean, they weren't exactly like Hamas before that, but extremist groups have been known to become um more moderate uh you know on October 7th these guys I think they had a good and their and their mission apparently was to go go penetrate as far as you can and wreak as much havoc well if they gave it much thought they probably realized there was a pretty good chance they're not coming back alive and you know uh you got to ask what what motive how do you get a bunch of people willing to do that and I think it begins with with a lot of hatred of Israel that that's uh that's my view you know 75 percent of the people in gaza are now homeless Glenn. they've been driven out with bombs falling around them and these boys who are eight nine ten eleven years old even even if they come to conclude that Hamas shouldn't have done this do you think they're not going to hate Israel I mean this is just this is just a, a feast for terrorist recruiters down the road and well, uh, so that's basically it. Yeah, I mean, creating more terrorists. We
1: should try to find a way for them to change because, after all, the PLO seems to have changed. You've heard these arguments. What's your response to all that?
3: First of all, um, I have my issues with the PLO, which evolved into Fatah, which is the faction, the le- the legacy faction of the PLO that now governs the West Bank, and I do believe that Fatah. As much as I disagree with some of the things they do and their leaders, I do think they're serious about governing the West Bank. They have demonstrated an interest in governing the West Bank. It is why they basically have political sovereignty in the West Bank. They have never launched any kind of war, genocidal war, against Israel. They're mostly moderate most of the Palestinians and their leaders in the West Bank are moderate, secular Muslims. Again, I disagree with some of the crazy statements that come out of the Palestinian Authority, but they're not trying to wage war against Israel. But how did
1: how did they go from being violent to? He's saying that somehow there's an analogy. Yeah. So
3: so that, so let's look at the history of Hamas. Hamas was formed in 1987. It was basically, by the way, you look at their charter; it's very clear. They're very explicit. They are they are committed to wiping the Jews. Off the map. So is basically the PLO still. Except the PLO ultimately got into power and got serious about governing. Hamas never got serious about governing. Like, Hamas never said, look, we're going to try and run the Gaza Strip. In 2005, Israel left the Gaza Strip. They said, we're out. Okay? 2006, Hamas wins Palestinian parliamentary elections for the Palestinian Authority. 2007, Hamas says, thank you very much for these wins we have in the parliamentary elections. But the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, is still running the West Bank and Gaza. They said, we are going to drive Fatah out of here. They, they staged a violent coup against their fellow Palestinians. They were literally taking them up the tops of buildings and throwing them. You can see this on video, throwing them off the roofs of buildings. It was a violent coup, and they took over. So now just look at what they have done with Gaza. Not only have they waged war against Israel, but they've used all the money that was sent to them from the international community, from all these Gulf states, from all these Arab states, to just develop like a t- terror launching pad. If you, I, I mean, I've been to the Gaza Strip. I've spent time. I, I spent a weekend in the Jabalia refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, which is where the first Intifada was launched from, which is a big source of the tension right now about uh, Jabalia being hit. If you go to Gaza Strip, it's a strip of land on the Mediterranean. I mean, I, I, it sounds odd to say this, but like if you look at it from a topographical standpoint, it could have been an incredible... Um, Singaporean like piece oh, uh, of hold up. Uh, uh, my
1: play Gaza economy. This just this is amazing. I I was just today looking for some clips of Gaza, and uh, Michael Moynihan had sent me something just to, to illustrate your point. And you can actually play it in in the background without the sound uh, while he's talking. But it it's not what I thought. It's it, at least it was. This is a 2017 Al Jazeera segment. I'm talking about electronics and toys. You'll see a TV. Um, so you can just keep the sound off, Mike. Yeah, just keep the sound off. So you'll just get a, a sense of you, you. 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 As you talk, it'll it'll come up behind okay. you.
3: Okay, oh, here we go. Oh. In recent years, God's trip has witnessed a great hike in consumer projects. So this is welcome to another episode of our show, Economy and the People.
1: So this is beautiful malls, and it's going to show the beachfront property and the beautiful restaurants and the. now part of me says. Well, you could do that in Manhattan too without showing, obviously, there's some bad things yeah. going on in Gaza. Yeah. But it's still not what I expected to see.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it renders the comparison to the Warsaw Ghetto particularly grotesque.
1: Yeah. He says today, Gaza, it has many archaeological size hotels, restaurants, theme parks. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah there you go. Like, this is what I'm talking it, about. Look, this is yeah. what I'm talking about. It looks so, like
2: Akko. Yeah.
3: Yeah. that's a good comparison so, so you sit on the water so they could have turned this I mean Israel left in 2007 all Israel you know that took thousands of Israelis forced thousands of Israelis that were living in Gaza forced them out dug up the graves of the remains of their families forcibly relocated them yeah there you go and uh and they left the greenhouses there they left the properties there they could have they were getting billions and billions and billions of dollars in Gaza and Development money. And that money was used to to build build a terror tunnels and a terrorist infrastructure, as opposed to developing. So that that you asked me the difference between Fatah and Gaza? At some point and Hamas. I'm sorry, between Fatah and Hamas, at at some point, like you give Hamas a chance, Israel gave Fatah a chance, and they've been trying to govern the West Bank. Okay, Mike, that's good. Okay, and I just want to mention one other point. This whole argument that young Palestinians are getting killed and they're gonna be the next generation of Hamas. Okay. Might be, it might be true, but who's responsible for those Palestinians being killed? I mean, really, I, I, Hamas has been responsible for the, for the slaughter of Israeli civilians, and they're also responsible for the slaughter of Palestinian civilians, because Hamas is choosing to fight their war behind the human shields of a generation of young Palestinians, they are choosing to do that. They're choosing to, to, to locate their offensive weapon capabilities at mosques, at UN-run schools, at hospitals. They don't have to do that. And the, but I think the, the argument is, is that Israel
0: needs to think two steps ahead, even if that's true— the people being killed are not going to see it that way.
3: Of course, which is why Israel goes to great lengths, I think, at a huge risk to, to Israel by warning. I mean, for three weeks, Israel saying, we're coming for Al-Shifa Hospital. We're coming. We're coming. By the way, you could argue the smart thing for Israel to do is not to give any warning. Who in war gives warning? You just go take the thing out and, and you take the military asset out. It's not Israel's responsibility to to make it harder for Israel to wage its war and yet Israel's for 3 weeks is broadcasting we're going to Al-Shifa hospital they're contacting the hospital they're speaking to the doctors they're trying to figure out ways to get the patients out of the hospital And they, they rejected are rejected per- and they're Basically. providing fuel I, 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 and their fuels being rejected and so is for 3 weeks at I'm telling you this from a security standpoint put Israel at a – put its own soldiers at, at greater risk. It put its own operations at greater risk. So at some point you have to ask, when Palestinian civilians get killed in that situation, whose fault is it? Well, it's okay. Hamas's so, fault. So let me answer you, and, I, and I'm going to – By the way, I think Biden – coming yeah. back to your earlier question yeah. – I think Biden needs to make this argument. He needs to say – because – All right, hold we'll hold come back. To, sorry. So I,
1: I shudder to think – I don't shudder to think, but I'm, I'm going to say something. It's dark what I'm going to say, but I I – Imagine that what I'm saying has uttered been uttered from the lips of Israelis at some point, which is that, well, it hasn't always been the case that these things cause more terrorists. After Hiroshima, it didn't cause more kamikazes. And by the way, going back to another thing he said, the, the kamikazes were ready to risk their lives without any real grounds for uh, hating america so much that they're ready yeah. to and they got their no
0: virgins from. either
1: so so yeah so ideology doesn't necessarily reflect actual experience but leaving that aside
3: or germany israel i mean the united uh, yeah. states like the, the nazi bombed, defeat, obliterated dresden and how many and we killed
1: 200,000 or so civilians in iraq without uh, uh, creating uh, you know uh, geometric numbers of terrorists but what all those had in common was an overwhelming horrible defeat and yeah, unequivocal. The, mind, the mind wanders to the notion that well if, you, if yes half measures might create more terrorists where unequivocal defeats might break will
2: You know what else creates more terrorists is putting these kids into Hamas camp, like summer camp. The point
1: is that Dan had it right. Israel, it's like when you when you get behind the wheel of a car on a Saturday night. We know people are drunk. You can't. It's 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 their fault. He's drunk. You know you're you're dealing with drunk drivers, and you still have to get home safely. Israel is dealing with whatever it's dealing with, and still has to make the smartest decisions, drive the most defensively that it can. And if it's going to backfire on them by doing this then obviously they shouldn't do that, even if all justice is on their side. So it's a weighty question, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can't just dismiss it as a stupid question. It's a weighty question. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they spent a lot of time pondering it. And then on, that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is, okay, what are our alternatives? Right. The status quo? The status quo is not Well, Israel thought really. one
3: alternative yeah. was to get out of Gaza. Yeah. 2005, Israel said, we're out. Yeah. they occupied Gaza from 1967 to 2005 and then they said and they were kept trying to reach a negotiation and negotiated uh, disengagement with the Palestinians it couldn't 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 Israel finally said enough with the negotiations we're out it's yours you win we're out zaizund you know go go develop <laughs> don't Gaza don't. go make it great you've got these billions and billions of dollars from the international community you know it's it's yours and then this is what they get for that all right, Wright Also talks
1: about the, the river to the sea, but I, I'm going to skip over that for now uh, because uh, I don't want to run out of time. So Yuval Harari, the the guy who wrote *Sapiens*, who's yeah. he's a pretty brilliant guy yeah. in my estimation. I agree.
3: And he was. Don't agree uh, with him on everything, but he's a brilliant guy. Yeah,
1: I didn't think you were going to agree with him on everything. Yeah. And uh, he said a few things on Sam Harris, um, and I just wondered after, upon listening to him. It's funny we have the same thing in our in our in our country that. Partisanship at some point gets the better of everybody. And I detected something that seems like like a Netanyahu derangement syndrome in him. And everything else, everything else he says is so brilliant to me. But play Harari one. I should have labeled it better for myself, but I think, and then Harari two, and then. But this, and by the way, I would recommend everybody to listen to this most recent Sam Harris episode. It's very good, and you'll learn a lot from it. And Harari is really insightful. But go ahead, go ahead, Mike
5: immense grief and pain. Turn it up, turn it up. There is also immense rage at Netanyahu and at his coalition. It's clear to a lot of people that yes, there were immediate failures of the the military, but this was the result uh, really of 14 years of being ruled by a populist strongman who divided the nation against itself and put his personal interests before the national interest, and especially over the last year, you know, trying to undermine Israeli democracy. And it was warned again and again and again by people in the army, in the intelligence, that this is weakening Israel at a very, very dangerous moment and distracting all the country and the security forces from the main threats. And it simply ignored all these warnings And now we are paying the price for it. And I think this is a lesson that people all over the world should take to heart, uh, that if you vote for a a populist strongman like that, then uh, eventually there comes a day when the entire nations pay a very, very high price for it.
4: Yeah, I think uh, I could be forgiven for hearing a pretty spot on description of Trump in your description of Netanyahu. I, I wasn't aware of how, what a Trumpian figure Netanyahu was not having followed Israeli I, I, politics. I said, maybe, so, he's, so he's painting the picture of Trump
1: as this, of uh, as Netanyahu as this populist, strong man, responsible for all this. Then he go, but then he says something which apparently seems to contradict that to me. Played Harari too, and this is what's interesting to me.
5: Israel and Saudi Arabia we're in an advanced state of stage of negotiations, mediated by the United States. And uh, according to many credible sources, maybe we were just weeks away from signing mm-hmm. an Israeli-Saudi treaty, which should have not just normalized relations between Israel and maybe the most important Arab state, but also opened the door to normalize relations with much of the rest of the Arab world. As part of this treaty, Israel was also supposed to make significant concessions to the Palestinians. And it was hoped that uh, it would be also possible to restart the Israeli-Palestinian peace process.
4: Mm. But you're saying yeah. that there, was, there were concessions to the Palestinians built into that, those negotiations?
5: Absolutely, because again, if it depended on the extremists in Netanyahu's government, that no, you would not have any concessions to the Palestinians. Mm. But of course, the treaty was negotiated not just by these extremists, uh, it was very clear, not just from the Saudi side, but also from the Biden administration, that there would be no treaty unless it includes significant concessions to the Palestinians that were supposed to alleviate, at least to some degree, uh, immediately, the suffering of Palestinians in the occupied territories and uh, reopen the, 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 the peace process. And again, the, the, uh, there, were, there was a lot of talk that Netanyahu would have probably to ditch his more extreme uh, allies okay, in the coalition. Okay, so, so we get the point of that. Mm-hmm. So
1: and let me add one more piece to that puzzle. Can you play the, the John Kerry quote? So let me just set it up where I'm going with this. On the one hand, they're criticizing this guy for being a populist, and this is what you get for electing populists. On the other hand, he says, but this knucklehead, whatever you want to call him, was this close to negotiating a deal with Saudi Arabia that would have revolutionized the Middle East and made concessions to the Palestinians. And he was literally on the precipice of it. And this is the context he did it in. Play the John Kerry quote. I was there
4: will be oh. no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying Well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality.
1: Okay, so you have the eggheads who know better, the Obamas, the John Kerrys, telling us, what is the matter with you? We are never going to have peace with the Arab world unless you, you know, fix the Palestinian issue. The idiots like Netanyahu, the the, the populists, say, no, 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 absolutely we can. He's right about to do it. Now, I I... I I don't know how you feel about it. It does seem to me that in the last year he did take his eye off the ball and he does have his fingerprints on what went wrong. But does that mean we can't acknowledge but he was also right about Everything that they were wrong about, all the people I mean, I don't know where Yuval Harari was, but I suspect he probably would have agreed with John Kerry at the time. But it and, sounds
2: like the deal with the Saudis was also contingent upon including
1: yes, and Netanyahu was involved. No, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, Dan will tell us the story, but you know, saying Netanyahu was a lone voice saying that this was possible, mm-hmm. he had a gut, call it populist, you know, the populists. Sometimes succeed because they are good judges of human nature. Like they, they, they understand what makes people tick. He understood what was possible when the Harvard types thought it was ridiculous. He, he went to
0: MIT. He's not quite a, you know, not <laughs> well, No, but,
3: but, yeah. but okay. I think it's not so enough. It's an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So Netanyahu is not Trump. Let, let me just. He's, he, you, we can disagree with Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu made some mistakes in this last year with the judicial reform debate. Uh, I generally think he's done some extraordinary things for Israel through his through his various terms in office. He's, but he's not, you know, impervious to making mistakes. He is not Trump. He is a deeply intelligent man who is a student of history. He reads about one nonfiction book a week a week. He's a constant consumer of political biographies. He's a student of history. His father, obviously, was a well-known, well-credentialed student of history. He is a very deep thinker about Israel, about Western civilization, about political political philosophy, about geopolitical strategy. I mean... Like Trump. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he's a war hero. Right. He fought in Sayeret Maktal, which is one of the most elite, it's like the Delta Force of... Uh, the Israeli Army. He has some extraordinary, he had some extraordinary experiences and battles he fought and operations he fought in in the IDF. I mean, I can go on and on. He's he's very experienced about governing. It's not a, it's not a game to him. He's 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 done some when he was finance minister in the Sharon government. What he did on economic reform was revolutionary for Israel and I think had lasting effects. Some of which we wrote about in our first book. Some of which we wrote about in this book. The way he managed COVID in Israel, which was really he was the, he was he got Israel to be the first country that that got vaccinated and got and reopened its economy i mean it's important to recognize the guy has got talents he's a serious person serious people can make serious mistakes it doesn't mean he's trump first of all um so now let's talk about what happened over this past year you can say the judicial reform process was misguided I, I felt that way. There was some of it I thought was worth doing. Some of it I thought they overshot. Either way, I thought they didn't build a consensus, which was a big problem. It's not clear to me yet, and I may be proven wrong, it's not clear to me yet that that is why the October 7th massacre happened. Because the argument is, Israel took its ball, it took its eye off the ball, and in and, and, and 2023 focused on, on judicial reform when it should have been focused on the southern border. It should have been focused on its security.
1: Harari says that there were 14 units on the west bank and only two yeah, watching yeah, gaza yeah i get it,
3: i get it. Yeah. the point is there was a there was an underlying security doctrine in israel going back to 2007 when hamas took over which was basically based on the assumption that hamas wanted to govern gaza that as much as uh, hamas talked about genocide in its charter hamas leadership was committed to governing Gaza at a practical level, the way the Palestinian Authority has been committed to governing in the West Bank, that they wanted to actually be, do the job of being a politician and and, and and running the place. And they weren't just focused on massacring the Jews. That was the security establishment consensus. If you believe that, then it's, you know, it's like after 9-11, when the 9-11 commission report came out. Uh, the 9-11 Commission said uh, – I'll never forget this line in the 9-11 Commission report. It said something like there were many failures by the U.S. government, the U.S. security apparatus that led to 9-11. But the most important failure was a failure of imagination, that that our government failed to think, wow, what, what could our enemies try to do to us? And if they did, how we would be vulnerable? I think there was a, a failure of imagination here of what Hamas – if they really wanted – to wreak havoc in Israel, what they could do. Mm-hmm. That assumption or mindset or consensus was shared by, while we were listening to, I wrote down, so when, when Israel withdrew from Gaza, Ariel Sharon was prime minister. He was he succeeded was by Ehud Omert, who was prime minister when Hamas was consolidating power in Gaza. Then Bibi became prime minister late 2008, early 2009, Hamas is in power. Then Naftali Bennett is in power for about 15 months in in 2022. He he he's his government collapses. Yair Lapid becomes prime minister. Then by the way, we're talking about people from the center, the right, the center, the left with Yair Lapid, and then Bibi comes back to power again, end of 22, early 23, and he's prime minister again. So I just listed one, two, three, four, five, six prime ministers. Bibi was prime minister for most of that time, but not the entire time. Six prime ministers. Not once did I ever hear from any of the others. Again, I'm not here to defend Netanyahu. I think, but this was the consensus. No one was saying, oh my gosh, we're on the cusp of a war from Hamas and we're taking our eye off the ball. People were critical of things Netanyahu were doing, but they weren't arguing that we, we were headed for an October 7th moment. I mean, so I just think this perception of what's happened, what happened October 7th, was much broader than just Netanyahu. And he's the leader. And he will take most of the blame, as he should. And after this war, there will be a commission of inquiry to understand what actually happened and how this happened. Like there are commissions of inquiry, Israel is ruthless about accountability of it for its prime ministers when there's been a war that that goes sideways. That was the case for Golda Meir after the Yom Kippur War, very aggressive commission of inquiry that ended her career and basically ended the Labor Party's you know, position in Israeli politics for basically a generation. Ehud Omert after the second Lebanon War, which was a mess, basically ended Ehud Omert's career. Also,
1: the commission on uh, Sharon and Sabrina Shatili, because exactly. I mean, that wasn't prime minister. Yeah, but they were. Very so
3: there, there, so there will be a commission We'll understand what happened. Yeah. But I, so I, I, I am, I'm reserving judgment because until that commission of inquiry, because there's more we don't know than we do know, so far. However, I, I do know there were some lone voices that were raising concern about what Hamas was up to, but the, the extent to which the view that, that, was, that Hamas was serious about governing was held by people beyond just Netanyahu, it's pretty hard to argue with that. And if that's the view, then to, argue, to blame judicial reform and what Netanyahu is doing, no one, people really weren't arguing otherwise. I am obs- I'm, I've sort of become, since October 7th, I was a little bit like this during COVID, but since October 7th I've, I've become obsessed with the whole subject of disaster science. Like how do disasters actually happen? It's it's a, it's a like so so there's this guy um James Meggs James B Meggs who's who's a who writer about tech and science and he just wrote this piece for Commentary magazine I'm gonna try to get him on my podcast and he's written about this before he like he's written these pieces on looking how we stumbled into COVID and seeing if there are any um, signs in other n- disasters around the world that are similar in terms of how one stumbles into a disaster and he feels that that's what's happened with Israel and with Hamas, the Hamas invasion October 7th. Like, what did Israel miss that resulted in this moment? So I, I'm going to do a podcast episode on my podcast about this topic of, like, applying disaster science to October 7th. So we'll learn a lot as these processes play out and as these investigations play out. I think, again, I disagree with a lot of what happened in Israel in 2023, but I, to si- make that the singular singular. Failure is is pins. It's easy. It's like lazy to just pin the blame on one person.
1: Yeah. All right. We're about out of time. I mean, I mean, there's a business cycle. There seems to be a complacency cycle. It's just human nature. You just get you get after a certain amount of time goes by. You just you let your guard down. Right. It probably will always be that way.
0: Well, can I circle back to? Yeah. Uh, something we we're talking about, about earlier Biden how and co- comedians are a melting pot. No, no, no. But, that, but that but that but it should. is true. I mean, we've got a very you should see what goes on here. There's, there's there's I mean there's no diversity like a comedy club diversity. Uh but in any case, um we're talking that is about That's
3: like an original insight. <laughs> yeah, Dan's good. The IDF yeah. <laughs> and comedy, you know, the comedy <laughs> business.
0: Um talking about Biden and how this affects Biden. Um I mean, how many voters is he going to lose just because even if he says all the right things that you deem to be all the right things. And he says, he, he makes that sister. So I didn't, by the way, I didn't get the sister soldier reference, but I let it slide. Do you want me to, you want me to tell you? <laughs> well, I guess briefly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in, in,
3: in, 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 when Bill Clinton was running for president in 1992, he, he took on uh, very aggressive sexist, racist language being used by black artists, black okay. rap artists on the left. What, what he would call on the left. And, and so Sister Soldier, he took on, he challenged. I think sis, he was there. Sister Soldier was at some event or something. He challenged. Yeah. And, and so it was this moment where he was taking on his own his own base, his own political. Yeah. Okay, so even and, if- And then he also
1: went to execute this poor right. soul in Arkansas. Right.
0: Even if Biden does that, to what extent will there be voters who says, you know, I'm so disgusted with the progressives. Biden may be okay, but, I'm, but guilt by association being what it is. I'm, I'm so revolted by anything on the left that I'm going to then cross over and vote on the right. I, I've heard people voice this notion and and to what extent do you think this will I be think significant?
3: A, I think it's a risk. I think that, I think the chaos on the streets of this country and the chaos on college campuses could get Trump elected in 2024. Uh, the chaos, meaning the chaos you're describing, this mm-hmm. craziness on the left. I think that, if they see in Joe Biden, though, someone who's willing to take it on is not a vessel for the for that craziness but is actually obstructing it and standing up to the craziness, I think he, he has a real shot. I think these independent voters, that's what they want to see. They want to see that he's sane, that he's not captured. You're basically saying, well, people uh, by association say right. you're part of the crazy. You're part of the left. Yeah, but if he can demonstrate that he's not captured by the left and that he's his own guy— I think if I were advising him, I would tell him, first of all, I'd tell him not to run. But but if he insisted on running, I'd tell him that's how he should run.
1: There's such a terrible dynamic because Biden is so teetering that Republicans are ready to stick by Trump. And Trump is so teetering that the, that the Democrats think, it's okay, we'll, we'll, Biden right. will, will get us through. Right. But the fact is, if if I think if Trump were to drop dead tomorrow and somebody like Nikki Haley were the candidate, she would wipe the floor with Biden.
3: If you look at any Republican running— Right now, in a head-to-head, you look at the polling. The head-to-head with with uh, Biden, they all beat him, like easily. Like with Trump, it's interesting that he is actually beating him, but not handedly. But Nikki Haley crushes Biden. Ron DeSantis beats Biden. Chris Christie crushes Biden. So yeah, there's no question. By
1: the way, I I don't think I know. We have to go. I don't think it's crazy to think that it. It's probably uh, less than. 30% Thirty percent chance, but I give it a fifteen twenty percent chance that if it, it does, should settle with Trump and one other Republican going into the next you know seven eight months with his legal problems with things that that he, somebody could could upend I him.
3: I agree. Could happen. I agree. I uh, I'm
1: hoping it happens. Yeah, we all hope it happens. <laughs> yeah. All right. Listen, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you. Uh, your podcast. I didn't. I don't just say things like that. That podcast is fantastic, and the way that I. Came upon is that Michael Moynihan from the Fifth Column. Yeah, he introduced me to. It. He said, "This is the smartest podcast I've heard in the last blah 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 yeah.
3: since October seventh because of the of our Israel conversation. Yeah, yeah, good
1: and and it's it's really really good. Um, and I hope you had a good
0: uh, experience here. Buy I, his book. I, I want to come back.
1: Oh, I feel great. like
3: we just scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I had another question. I'll ask you off here. Go ahead. And,
3: and, and she's and, wearing. You're wearing his swag. You got you got Israeli. Sw- I mean, I feel at home here.
2: Am Israel Chai. Am Israel
3: Chai. Uh, she, the people she, of has, Israel
1: live. He has to pronounce. When I first met her, she was a real left wing everything, and but she's she's coming. You want to ask one more? You have well, time one did. more question? Yeah, you know,
0: uh, you're talking about the genius of Israel, and you mentioned Shabbat, and everybody has Shabbat, of course. Twenty percent of Israel is uh, Arab, mostly Muslim. Is there any way to at, at least on some level bring them into this solidarity that you're talking about, or is that just a lost cause?
3: No. It's not a lost cause. I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'm glad. so glad you said, can I ask one more question? Oh, good. This, Go is, this question is one of my favorite topics since my book has come out to talk about. We In our book, we spend an afternoon, we read a chapter about it, we spend an afternoon with Mansour Abbas, who's the leader of the Ra'am party, which is one of the most important Israeli Arab parties in the Israeli Knesset, in the Israeli parliament. So you're right, about 20% of the population, a little less, uh, is Israeli Arab, are Israeli Arab, and they have political parties in the Knesset. They have seats in the courts, in the Supreme Court. They have, they populate the universities. They're they're very well, very well represented as they should be. But in the Knesset, most of the political parties have have um, have invaded against the Israeli government and the Israeli state for all of their existence. And then there was the Ram Party, which is the guy Mansour Abbas, who led the party. It's an Islamist party, but he basically said, look, we're Islamists religiously but we are going to work. Israel's always going to be a Jewish state. We want to be part of it. We we have a lot of rights here. We don't want to leave. We don't want to go live. We live much better lives here than we would in any other country. We want to live here. We want to be represented here. We want to help support our communities. There's there, the Arab communities in Israel have um, real security problems, Arab on Arab violence. We want to deal with that. And so he did something that no Arab party has ever done. He joined the Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid government in 2022. He became, he became a, he was a kingmaker in the government. And um, and then they ran again in the last election, and he gained more votes than he had the first time he ran, I mean, the previous election, which means more Arab voters were supportive of him joining the government than being on the outside and throwing, you know, uh, shooting shooting at the Israeli government. Since October 7th, there's been some— inc- okay, I don't want to sugarcoat this because things could change, but so far, some incredibly powerful statements from leaders in the Arab community. Lucia who's a, who's a, an Arab— broadcaster in Israel, so she's she's an anchor on one of the Israeli news channels, very proud, self-identified Arab, Israeli Arab. She went on the air, she said it in Hebrew, I think she said it in Arabic, and she certainly said it in English. I can forward you guys the clip. She said, I'm an Arab, I'm an Israeli citizen, those people, Hamas, are my enemy, I stand with my country, Israel, and there should be no, talk about no nuance, there should be no nuance. right, In Jaffa, so there's a number of these mixed Jewish-Arab cities in Israel. Jaffa is one of these cities that, I don't know, it's maybe a third Arab. In May of 21, when Israel and Gaza were fighting, some of these cities lit up, Jews on Arabs fighting with each other in, in Israel. There was deep concern that would happen again after October 7th. A volunteer civil security commission was formed from the bottom up. Israeli Arabs, Israeli Jews got together and said, let's form a security committee to make sure we never fight against each other because things are gonna get hot now post-October 7th. Thousands and thousands of people are volunteering. They have big WhatsApp groups. They're organizing all these meetings. There's uh, The Israel Democracy Institute just came out with a poll. First of all, Israeli solidarity is at its highest it's ever been. It's like record level solidarity, Israeli solidarity with each other and with the state. But most important, Israeli Arabs feel a sense of solidarity with their fellow citizens, including their Jewish citizens. Now again, don't want to sound Pollyannish. Things can change, but I'm. There's something going on right now where, for the Israeli Arab community, the Hamas attack was like a wake-up call because it like sharpened the differences. Yeah, you know, we were sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. They would say, but not that, mm. that, that. And and many Arabs were killed on October seventh. Israeli Arabs were were slaughtered by Hamas, and some Israeli Arabs I think were taken hostage. And there's some incredible stories of of the guy uh, with the
2: bicycle shop
3: yeah yeah yes these amazing stories of of heroism of some of these some of these is like the bedouin community was incredible these stories of what they did on october 7th to fight hamas so
2: because it's their country too right and that's what they say and really it's the only way forward and everybody who lives in israel doesn't matter if you're jewish or an israeli arab you're israeli you're
3: israeli you vote in the elections you have access to the universities. You have the access to some of the best healthcare in the world. You're, you're part of the system. I'm not suggesting there aren't problems, and I'm not suggesting there aren't tensions. Of course there are. But October 7th may have had the effect of saying, of, of leaving many Israeli Arabs thinking we're, we're not part of That's their vision for the future. We're not part of that. Mm-hmm. We're part of this. And we get into that in our book about these Israeli Arabs. We have a chapter on it. I'm I'm really glad you. I think it's a really important question. It's part of what gives me hope.
1: Yeah, Harari talks about this issue as well. He does Uh, about the hopefully. Yeah, Yeah. he talks about it in in a nice. uh, I mean, in a a way that I think you would agree with.
3: All right, thank
1: you very much. Thank you guys. The
2: Genius of Israel.
1: The Genius of Israel by Dan Senor. Get it at um, Amazon or a
3: Barnes and
2: Noble.
1: Barnes and Noble or the local Jewish bookstore near you. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you guys.
2: We'll be right back. back.